but that's the scary thing is is is, is changing oneself. Um, you know, not not necessarily even you know changing politics or or countries or whatever. Doing the internal work is the really hard work. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to the Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. The thing that first strikes you about Jack Heath is that he's calm, really calm, almost spookily calm. If I had to pick someone to sit next to me as our plane hurtled towards certain destruction, it would be a toss-up between my wife and Jack. I first met Jack about 2001 when he was visiting the United States and we had lunch at an Asian restaurant in Harvard Square. I loved hearing his stories about working for Paul Keating. I was intrigued about his shift into the world of suicide prevention, creating the Inspire Foundation, which runs the ReachOut.com Youth Mental Health Service. Four years ago, Jack became the CEO of SANE Australia. But it was only as I've gotten to know Jack better that I've realised the most important thing about him isn't his CV, it's how he lives his life. Jack, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Andrew. I want to start with your childhood and your experiences at boarding school. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about how life was for you at boarding school? Yeah, so I grew up on a farm in northeastern Victoria and was sent off to boarding school at the age, I think it was 11 or 12. Um, I went off sort of bright-eyed bright and eager for that to, um, to take place. Uh, three years or two and a half years after I'd started at boarding school, I was abused by um, a priest uh, over a period of about five or six months. And in the end, I, ended, I developed um, a, it was a form of hepatitis and it felt a little bit like my body just sort of rescued me from the situation and so I ended up having to go home and I spent... I think about six weeks in bed before I sort of came back towards the end of the year. A terrible experience for a young boy. Yeah, it was. I think the thing is that at the time, you you know, priests were up on a pedestal and when you're young, you don't have an experience of another reality. So you almost just accept this is just how it is. And so it's only the passage of time that gives you a bit of perspective um, that you start to understand that you know, that was quite, if you like, an unusual experience and, and um, obviously has a profound effect on someone. You were on a path to becoming a priest yourself, a Jesuit priest at that time, weren't you? Well, that was, I felt that that was actually going to be inevitable. I felt like I had no choice in the matter, that, uh, you know, I'd grown up in a family that was very strongly devoted. I used to go to Mass when I was at boarding school every morning. Um, and it was very much about wanting to pick up the messages of Christ and wanting to try and be of service to others and it was almost a sense of you know I would just end up being a Jesuit one day. 
And what did you end up doing as you as you left school? Did you uh, can you go, go and study Bible college? No, I didn't. No, I think you know in some ways it might be related to my experience, um, you know, of abuse. But what happened when I was in my final year of high school, I was studying Renaissance um, and Reformation history, and what sort of struck me there was the way in which man became, if you like, on a par with God, or that thing of God was sort of in inverted. And, you know, this might sound strange, but I was um, getting towards the end of HSC, or, or sorry, as we call it, VCE down there. And, you know, I'd done reasonably well in the trials, and I actually made a conscious decision not to pray for success in my results. And um, my results ended up being quite good. And so, in a sense, I, I stepped away from, if you like, God as sort of the, the dominant framework that I was operating in, went to university, and quickly became consumed in a lot of uh, Marxist and other studies. So, salvation went to being um, salvation in the world and in the world of radical politics. And in fact, you know, when I was in those early days at university, you know, I, I wouldn't even go anywhere near the ALP because they were far too conservative. So I was hanging out with the, you know, the trots and all the other sort of rat bag groups. But um, um, at the same time, which was quite strange, was that I was also, though, living at uh, Newman College, which was a Catholic college and which was probably one of the most conservative colleges. So I'd, you know, come from studying, you know, Althusser and Gramsci and that to heading back to college and putting on the footy boots and going and playing the footy. Uh, did you, uh, were you a serious AFL player through this period? No, look, no, I, was, I wasn't a great footballer. I, I, played, I played for Newman and um, I played, I think, about a year and a half in the amateur league, so I played for Uni Blues. Um, look, I was an okay footballer, but, but not a star at all. Did you enjoy your time at Melbourne University? Yeah, I did. I, I, you know, I ended up being there for, um, for seven years. Um, I did an, an honours arts degree and, and also a law degree, so normally that would take six. I, I actually had a pretty tough time, um, and I only sort of realised this recently when I was speaking to a Melbourne University Law School alumni recently. I, I, I got to one stage where I was just absolutely exhausted. I hadn't, had, I hadn't finished an assignment. Um, they were always famous for the fact is if you didn't have anything on the dot at five o'clock, um, you just uh, you you weren't able to submit and you would be a fail. And I remember going and seeing um, the dean of the law school at the time, and uh, and I just sort of walked into her office and I just sort of said, I can't get this done. I think I burst into tears at the time, and I was pretty well close to finishing my law degree. And she quite extraordinarily sort of said, Oh, look, that's all right. You can have another couple of weeks. And um, anyway, I got it in and then completed the law degree. Um, so look, I. I enjoyed the study immensely. I enjoyed a lot of the philosophy, a lot of the social theory. Um, and, and also, too, I actually enjoyed law, and I liked the whole approach of law, and I liked argument and, and, and good reasoning as well. So uh, it was a good time. I was at Newman College for, um, I think, about four, four, maybe five years all up there. Um, ended up becoming president of the uh, Students Club, which was interesting because once you expressed an interest in it, if you gave any glimmer or sense that you were campaigning, 
you're absolutely ruled out. So all you just say, I'm running for it, and that's it. And you, you couldn't even talk to anyone about it. <laughs> Some people argue that uh, federal elections should be run on the same principle, but uh, <laughs> we haven't quite gotten there. Uh, and you were going to study acting for a while, weren't you? Yeah, look, I, I, I did, I did a, a reasonable amount of acting during uni and um, in the final year, and that was part of the thing I think that was contributing to not doing so well with my um, law studies, um, but I, I had a passion for acting and I think it was that thing about the intensity of the experience and being there uh, in the moment. Um, again, it was a bit like my football. I was okay at it, but I wasn't um, outstanding. Uh, but that was when I actually connected up with my wife who was um, um, a far better actor than me and, uh, uh, and that was in our final years. We both went off and uh, did auditions for, for NIDA. I mean, she progressed further than I did. But at that stage, I was thinking... Um, Yes, I want to be an actor, um, but I'd finished the degree. Um, what happened was that I didn't quite know what to do, so I applied for a number of the cadetships in the, in the public service and had interviews with uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet, but I had a sneer on my face, I think, throughout the interview and was quite arrogant. And then when, um, I always remember, I, I got phoned. I used to work throughout my university days as a storeman to sort of, you know, to pay my way and that. And um, I can always remember when I, I got the call and it was from the uh, Australian Government Retirement Benefit Office, an office offering me a position in, I think it was either their administrative law or superannuation area. And, you know, my admin law wasn't very good at all and, and my heart just sank and I didn't quite know um, what to do. And um, as things transpired, fortunately, there was an opportunity coming up in the Federal Public Service Board and given my legal background and that, I ended up working as a junior advocate there for a couple of years before joining Foreign Affairs. And then Foreign Affairs, you, uh, you were posted off. Was Thailand your first, first posting? Is that yeah, what? so Bangkok was the first posting. Um, headed off there as the uh, economic third secretary, which was rather interesting given I had no backgrounds in economics. Um, yeah, but I sort of went off there... Um, you know, it was a big wild adventure. I knew nothing about Thailand. And, um, um, and my wife, um, at that point, we weren't married, but uh, she'd been working in publishing when she didn't pursue an acting career. And uh, what happened was that when I got the posting to Bangkok, not long after that, she got offered a, you know, quite a exciting position as an editor, but decided that she would come over to Bangkok with me. And that was... You know, and she knew the lifestyle because her father had been an ambassador in many countries and things, so she knew what she was putting her hand up for. But there was a sense that she was sacrificing her career a little bit to, to come over to Thailand. How did that affect your relationship, that, uh, that sense that she was trading off her career for yours? Did, is that something you had to, you had to make right in subse subsequent years? Oh, yeah, look, in, in, in some ways I think I've probably only redressed that in in the last four years, because when I was offered the job at Sane, originally we were planning to move to Melbourne, uh, which, you know, we both went to school and university there, of course, um, and we couldn't move for six months because our oldest uh, daughter was doing final year high school, so the deal was we'd move at the end of the year, and we actually went and started looking at suburbs, houses and all that sort of thing. But about five weeks into the job with Sane, Kath had been working at uh, Allen and Unwin, got a big promotion as a publisher at HarperCollins and um, despite the fact that there's probably no one in the world that would rather live in Melbourne than Kath, she said to me, you know, I've spent whatever it was, 20, 30 years following around the world, we're not moving to Melbourne. So 
I was confined to the Qantas lounge at that point in time. <laughs> and now your time in Thailand mm -hmm. was, was marked by a horrendous episode that happened to a friend of yours who'd been visiting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, look, it was... I, I arrived, I think it was on New Year's Day or, or, or the 2nd, and... Um, a friend of a chai or who had actually been a theatre director and she directed the play where my wife and I sort of um, got together and um, Eva was travelling in the north of Thailand and I think I think we'd made the arrangement that um, what would have been my second week in, in uh, Bangkok she was going to come and um, stay with me and the day after I'd arrived, I went in to see the uh, chief administrative officer just to talk about, you know, my accommodation or something. And I walked in there and um, I sort of sat down and he said to me, he said, oh, well, Jack, they've found the body. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, oh, didn't you know? He said, ever try or been murdered? And, um, and I was just, just um, you know, obviously in shock. And... The thing was that she was then up in Chiang Mai, they'd brought the body to Chiang Mai and there was talk of a, a couple of her friends coming over from um, Australia. One was a lawyer and there was another who was a friend. And so I sort of said, well, you know, look, I'll, I'll go up to, you know, Chiang Mai. Um, I had a smattering of Thai because I'd had about, I think, about six weeks training. And... Um, Anyway, so I went and saw the ambassador and he was quite good. And as it turned out, I think it was his daughter or son knew of Eva or there was some relationship there. And so he said, that's fine, you can go up to Chiang Mai. And I think in the course of me departing and arriving in Chiang Mai, um, word came back that apparently she was meant to have had heroin in her body. Now, you know, for someone who, you know, from all my days at theatre, who never drank, who'd never go more than a chamomile tea, this was sort of quite, quite extraordinary. So I went up to Chiang Mai, a couple of friends, they came over from Australia and they brought things like a beautiful um, shawl of um, white silk and a couple of Eva's, you know, sort of favourite little objects. And I, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, I grew up on a farm, I've seen lots of dead animals and stuff. So I sort of volunteered to go to the morgue and to ask the person there to dress up the body and, um, and then I'd... Um, let them know because the thing was that she'd been uh, she'd been strangled and, and, and raped as well and anyway so I, I went into the morgue and I thought I'd explained in my faulty tie to the person there look can you make up the body do it up and once it's done let me know and I'll come back and have a look and as it was he just sort of pulled open like one of those fridge doors and just sort of pulled the body out and so you know I could see you know it was it was very um, uh, it was very confronting, but you saw, you just sort of saw death and it was just a profound sense that this was a body without life. Um, so anyway, we then had the body done up and we had the cremation um, there, which was quite wonderful. And, and you know, I'm only remembering now, but, I, you know, at, at the cremation, and all, it was almost like Eva was sort of there. She was always a beautiful spirit and presence. Um, but then the issue became very complicated because it was all... You know, this was visit Thailand year. Um, you know, there was all the issues about, you know, had she been taking drugs or something and all that. And, you know, I imagine the ambassador at the time sort of thought, well, you know, what's this, you know, new young third secretary I've got on my plate here? So um, that was a pretty torrid introduction. And the thing was that because Kath was still finishing up her work, she wasn't coming over to Thailand, I think, 
until the end of January. So it was very much a sense of you know, dealing with that on my own. But then also what happened was that the friends that have come you know, over from Australia went back. And in some ways, I don't think I ever really went through a proper sort of grief process. Um, and then, you know, I got very taken up in all the work in Thailand and, um, you know, in many ways that was very exhilarating in terms of some of the things that we did there. But it was, you know, when I look back, it was quite a, quite a manic period for basically about two years. A manic and a productive period, right? I mean, you were involved in Australia funding a, a bridge across the Mekong, which is... Uh, uh, a career achievement that many people would regard as the as the capstone of a of a career in the public service. Yeah, look, it was, it was, it was. You know, oh, you know, I was partying a lot, I was drinking a lot, but you know, I I loved the work. Um, I I think I'd sort of moved, you know, more because if I can just go back briefly, was that um, after my wife and I started going out. Um, would have been at the end of um, 1984. Her father at the time was the ambassador in, in Burma. And I went over there and we spent, I think it was about 10 days there, but I met this extraordinary man called Umin Tain, um, who we referred to as Uncle Monty. And when I went there, I had you know long curly hair, I had a leather jacket, I had a sneer. I mean, going off to this sort of toffee foreign affair stuff was, you know, I didn't want to have any part of that. So I had a lot of attitude, but I met this man and... Um, I was very taken by him. Um, he'd been their first Chief Justice. Um, I think, like me, he'd been a bit of a ratbag when he was studying law. But he came back and he did all their negotiations at the UN. Um, he was then imprisoned twice by Nay Win, um, the second time when his wife was dying, so he wasn't able to go to her funeral when she was unwell. But I, I met him and I remember sitting... Um, in his lounge room, very modest as it was, but there was, I'd look around, there were photos of him and Mao and him and Chiang Kai-shek and him and Ho Chi Minh and, you know, people I'd, you know, studied at university and um, I was just taken, I thought, oh, well, the foreign affairs is about meeting individuals like this. I think I might have a go at it. So I then went back in my very ambitious way, went to Monash and thought, what are going to be the things that, you know, foreign affairs has got to be most interested in and so I did my first uh, paper on the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty and then the second one was Australian Agricultural Trade and the GATT. Um, I got good marks and then got into foreign affairs. But what happened was that when um, I did that, I did an essay on um, agricultural trade and the GATT and got published in the Australian Business Law Review. But when I um, went to Thailand, I went and saw a young professor who'd just come back from um, Harvard and uh, he'd done his uh, law degree there. And as my way of introduction, I showed him the article and, and he sort of said, oh, I've read that recently, I think I should, we should subscribe to the you know, Australian Business Law Review. Anyway, we developed a little bit of a rapport. He then became a part of a sort of inner kitchen cabinet when Chart Chai became Prime Minister. And because I think they regarded as Australia as a sort of fairly benign and not having an agenda, um, we developed a nice relationship and it was when Hawke was about to come in the beginning of uh, 89, we were asked to try and think of initiatives and things that Australia could do with Thailand because that was when Hawke was just starting to try and get the whole APEC uh, idea up and running. And, um, and so with Surakit, um, uh, you know, I was having lunch with him and I'd read in the paper that the 
Japanese um, were talking about building a bridge across the Mekong. And I thought, well, maybe Australia could build a customs house or something on one side of it. And so I, I mentioned to that to him when we were having lunch. And then it was about, maybe it was about Friday that week, he had me around to his place for dinner and um, he had one of his professors out from Harvard. So anyway, at the end of the dinner, he pulled me aside and he said, Jack, you know, you know the stuff about the Mekong and that. And he said, I've spoken to the boss. And I said, well, who's the boss? He said, oh, the Prime Minister. And he, <laughs> sa and he, said, um, he said, I would like Australia to build that bridge. I went, oh, my God. So I went back and Richard Butler just arrived as the ambassador and I told him and he took it in his stride and I think we were phone phoning Hawke's chief of staff who was in Korea at the time and in the period of, you know, a couple of hours or whatever it was decided that Australia was going to build the bridge. So that was quite, you know, exciting and wonderful and then the other thing that happened uh, through, through Surikit was that, and again Richard Butler was involved here, was that he basically went out on a limb around the whole Cambodia peace process because the official view, which was partly, you know, the Americans were driving as well as the Australians, was that there had to be a comprehensive settlement, so that the Khmer Rouge had to be part of the settlement. And basically, Butler went out on his own and said, this is ridiculous, um, we should look at having sort of a partial settlement. And, um, and so, partly working with the, you know, advisors to the Thai Prime Minister, uh, we ended up, um, there were three of us, we went and we were the first Westerners to meet with Hun Sen, so we had this sort of secret meeting in a hotel just outside the uh, Bangkok airport. And so again, you know, very heady stuff and you had very much a strong sense that a small group of people could really shape national destiny. Um, Surakit went on to become the Foreign Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, and um, until the coup took place, um, uh, he was the uh, candidate for the UN secretary-general position and had a lot of support within Asia. Um, so when, when the coup took place, I forget the year exactly now, but um, he'd just come back, I think it was from New York and lobbying there, and then suddenly he was, um, he was out of a job. It's an important period for Australian foreign policy, isn't it? That moment in which a lot is changing in our region and we're sort of deeply engaged with it. Uh, and then you came back to, uh, to, to Australia to work with what I regard as, uh, as, as a sort of an extraordinary trio of uh, Labor front benches, Gareth Evans, Peter Cook and then Paul Keating. Uh, what did you learn, what's the most important thing you learned from each of them? Uh, Gareth I'd known, you know, a little bit for a number of years from when he was running Labor Lawyers, and it was back when I was in university days. Um, I, I had a deep respect for his intellect and also for his passion um, about wanting to build you know, a better world. And I remember when we had him come and speak at college, it was all about a new constitution for Australia. So I, I just really admired um, um, his passion, his determination, but a really strong sense of social justice. Um, with, with Peter Cook, um, it actually, I, I wrote speeches for him and Gareth uh, in, in uh, when was that, in 93. It, it took me a little bit longer to get to know Cookie because he's a little bit more, how would you say, I'm sort of taciturn or whatever. But, but the thing around him that I learned from him was about, he was very good in terms of building rapport and relationships with people and he was also a great, a great listener. Um, I went from working for Michael Kirby to work for Peter Cook. And yeah. uh, 
You probably couldn't find two Australians with more different working styles. Kirby, a lover, a lover of paper and careful briefings. Cook, somebody who, who wanted, wanted a yarn, wanted to chat. Well, I mean, it's exactly right, because at the time I was writing, you know, for both Gareth and Peter Cook, and I knew Gareth. I mean, I could hear his voice in my head. It was like, you know, drafting speeches for him, which obviously he'd, he'd rework himself, but it was a bit like I was just taking dictation. I could hear the voice. And with Cookie, though, I, I, I took probably about four or five months before I could get it right. And, mm. and then it suddenly clicked. It was all about having conversations with people. So then all you'd do is you'd start a speech by the, the phrase, last week I was talking to someone who said something. Yes. And suddenly you had the entree. So it, it, was, it was harder getting to, um, to, to connect with Peter. But he, had, he, he, was, a, he was a kind man and, um, yeah, he was, he, he was a pleasure to work for. And PJK? <laughs> well, PJK, um, look, I, I always wanted to work in the, in the PM's office. Um, and uh, I was hoping to go and work when Hawke was PM. And then when, uh, when, when Paul came in, um, I went and worked for Stephen Martin for a while and obviously then with Gareth and, and with Peter Cook. Um, and what had happened is because of the speeches I'd written, um, Paul was looking for a second speechwriter to support Don Watson. And Jeff Walsh, who'd been my boss in Foreign Affairs, was his new chief of staff. And uh, look, at the time, I was pretty tired and exhausted. I was, you know, I'd had chronic fatigue. You know, there was probably hangover PTSD or stuff from, you know, trauma, a number of traumas there. And, and also, too, I'd been, um, despite the fact that I was writing for both Peter Cook and Gareth Evans in an acting role, at the end of... Um, that year in 93, I didn't even get the promotion into the role that I was acting in. And I was sort of really angry about that because I worked so hard for that. Um, and so I was sort of looking, I worked for Cookie for a while when he was, um, uh, I think it was industry, trade, technology. Um, but I really needed to take a break. And so I said, look, I'm going to take a couple of months off. But then the carrot of working for Paul got dangled and, you know, as ambitious young men are wont to do, you grab the carrot. Um, but when I went, as, went off to have the sort of first meeting with him and I was going there to be, you know, to be a speechwriter and he proceeded to tell me how he wrote all his own speeches. <laughs> I was just sort of going, <laughs> and I was going, well, I'm not quite sure about this. But um, I think the thing was that one of the things I think was attractive as well was that um, after my experience of Thailand um, where a few people were shaping sort of national destiny, I'd assembled a group of really impressive young Australians, you know, people like me who at that stage would have been in their 30s but working in a variety of fields and they were sort of, you know, the up-and-coming stars at the McKinsey's and, you know, the um, people, you know, at Graduate School of Management. Anyway, I think the thing was I was able to bring a little bit of that sort of new thinking but the fact that these people were a lot more engaged with technology and where, where trends were happening and so I think that was part of the reason that I was, I was brought in. Um, but, the, you know, the thing about when I, you know, I was told that, um, you know, you might not get to spend a lot of time with Paul. Don't presume that you're going to be there, you know, too much. You might see him every so often. And anyway, I walked into the um, office on day one and, um, and my wife, Kath, at that stage, was, I think it was about seven weeks before Lucy was due to be born. I walked in there and Jeff Walsh said to me, he said, he said, mate, you're ready. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, didn't you know Don Watson's wife, Hillary, had a massive heart attack? 
and he said, you've got, um, you've got three speeches on Wednesday, one on Thursday and two on Friday. I mean, some of them were short ones, but <laughs> this was sort of like week one. And so I spent almost most of the first week in Paul's company. And um, on the Friday night, we were, the, we were sort of standing there, you know, at um, Curabilly looking out over the harbour, and I think we might have all had a couple of drinks. And um, he was telling me interesting stories about working with Bob and... And uh, so that was, and so I sort of thought, wow, here we are flying around in planes and stuff and feeling very pleased with myself. I, when we went back to Canberra, I said to friends, you know, I've got another six baby free weekends of this. And, um, and then Cats uh, Waters broke on the, on the Monday. And so um, I think Don might have been back at work by then. But the whole thing was that, you know, they were completely, Paul was completely unfazed about you taking off to do spend time with family and one of the one of the wonderful things about working there was that you know come a Friday afternoon if you went into the PM's office the staffers all their kids would be there running around and so he had such a strong sense of the importance of family and so notwithstanding the fact that I'd you know just landed in the job I think I took a week or something off um, because uh, yeah, Lu Lucy was sort of six weeks prem so that was all a bit of a shock as well and then from then onwards, um, you know, I still had the chronic fatigue. I'd been getting um, acupuncture three, four times a week, which would just give me a clarity to write. And um, I got to the end of the year and I was just really struggling to keep it together. I'd be writing speeches and then you'd have to go, I might have got numbers mixed up and, you know, some sort of simple mistakes. Excuse me. And, um, but one of the... One of the big things that we did there, though, was that when we were coming up to the Creative Nations statement, and um, I remember getting in, um, Daniel Petrie was running Microsoft at the time, and Michael Rennie and Dave Harrington both in McKinsey. And I sort of, we brought them in because, you know, we wanted to talk about, you know, technology and that. And we spent, I think, about two, two and a half hours with us and Paul just sitting around the, I think we were sitting in the cabinet room. And the thing was that Paul just completely got the technology, the internet thing from the get-go. But I think it might have been because possibly Rennie sort of said, you know, Paul, imagine that you could talk to anyone around the world about French antique clocks. And, and suddenly he just had a sense of the power of the technology to, to you know, to, to bring together communities of interest. And, um, and Paul just got it and ran, ran with it. And so we sort of, you know, put together a, a package of initiatives, which I think we then called the multimedia initiatives or something. But... But that sort of really, I, for me, sort of got the, the whole internet piece on the, on the public policy agenda. It wouldn't have happened without Paul's sort of ability just to see where things were going. So, you know, wonderful working with him. He was always incredibly um, um, generous. So sometimes you'd, you know, draft a speech um, and he'd just put it in his pocket and not use it. But he'd always make a point of saying, look, you know, thanks, mate, for that. Really appreciated it. So you got to, he, he was very nurturing. Hmm. Which was interesting because he, the way in which he was in the world and politics and that, it was sort of like, you know, he'd come back into the office or he'd be with family and he'd take off all his armour and he'd take off his scabbard and put his sword down. But then once he went out into the public world, it would be there and sword, sword poised. So we saw a, a side to Paul Keating that we certainly tried to get out there for the public to understand. But Paul had a very strong sense of this is your public life and this is your private life. Do you do any of that armouring up when you're out in public or do you consciously try to avoid it? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, look, I, 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 suspect, I suspect I, I do quite 
a bit of it, but not in the sense of um, um, I'm not someone that wields a sword. Um, I think Paul Paul did that. I've I've never I've never felt at all comfortable about putting your hand on a sword. Um, but there is an extent to which I'm not sure if it's quite a, an armoring, but um, you know I was quite surprised to hear you say that you thought I was extremely calm. So suddenly I'm wondering if I'm looking like one of those ducks that goes across the water that's looking like they're completely gliding, gliding but underneath there's a whole lot of frantic activity going on. Um, I think I, I can, when I go out into the world, I think I can, if you like, lock into a bit of an external persona, if you like, that you, I mean, I don't know if it's part of the actor in me or whatever, but you're going and then there's an extent to which you're performing a little bit. Um, but, but, you know, I think trying to, you know, always... I mean, by and large, trying to do it for the, you know, for the right reason and trying to advance uh, advance things rather than um, trying to create some sort of false personality, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. yeah. And then you uh, you make a big shift out of politics and uh, and into creating the Inspire Foundation. What was the catalyst for that? Yeah. So, in a sense, these shifts sometimes happen of a force of their own rather than I've decided I'm going to do you know, something else. But um, in 92, when I'd been working up in Parliament House with, um, with Stephen Martin, um, I had a young cousin who um, had developed catatonic schizophrenia. Um, my mother was the, probably the primary carer for him because um, his mum you know, wasn't coping so well. Uh, my mother was also looking after her my, my aunt, her sister-in-law, who'd had paranoid schizophrenia. And then in the midst of all this, you know, mum became, you know, quite unwell herself. Um, and, and I remember um, going down to see mum at a hospital in, in Melbourne and um, we were sitting in the public area there and my cousin came in with, with his mother and then, you know, in some ways you almost have to laugh at it, but... Um, he suddenly had a catatonic attack. So he's sitting there in the chair, rigid, not moving. And there's mum, who's quite sort of manic, racing around like a balloon going off. And sort of in that moment, you just sort of experienced, um, you know, quite the extremes of just frenetic activity to someone who's just completely frozen. Um, so I think that would have been that would have been around June or July, I think. Um, I, Kath and I then got married. Um, in August at St John's in Reed, which was where um, her parents had been married, and her I think it was her grandfather was a minister had been there as well. Beautiful but, church. Beautiful church, but the only thing was that having been brought up very devout Catholic um, and in sort of very much black Irish, my father um, was refusing to go into an Anglican church. So what, what happened was, anyway, there's a whole lot of stuff going on, and... Um, and Richard Butler came along to the wedding and um, someone came up and said, oh, your dad's refusing to go into the church. And, and Butler came up and said, oh, it's all right, Jack, leave it to me. I'll get him in there. And I thought, oh, well, if this guy can, you know, do all these negotiations around non-proliferation treaties and that, it should be fine. And um, anyway, so we went and we had the wedding and we did it sort of in a, in, in a traditional way. But at the end, we turned to walk down the aisle and I looked over and there was just mum and my brothers and sister. And the old man wasn't there. And so he'd spent the whole time outside the church just sort of because he couldn't bring himself to actually go in anyway. So the uh, man who could bring the Cambodian peace process to fruition <laughs> still couldn't, uh, couldn't move your dad. Couldn't get my old man in there. 
So we, we then went off on um, a honeymoon and um, we came back about, uh, would have been about a week later, but came back to the news that um, my young cousin had, had, had tried to kill himself and on our family farm. And um, I won't go into the details of it, but you know he'd left himself with horrendous um, injuries. And um, a couple of days later, I, I remember going into the hospital, he was at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and I went in with my brother, and um, and uh, you know I always remember just going in there, and suddenly I saw. I remember you used to watch those the old phantom comics or something, or you'd have those things of like mummies with their heads all wrapped up. And 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 I walked into the um, into the hospital, and there I could see his entire head bandaged, so it was about three times what you'd normally see, and he had all these tubes in his body, and. Um, and when he heard my brother and I talking, it was like he was trying to sort of get up out of the bed and I think they ended up sedating him. Um, he spent, I think, about, roughly about three months there in hospital having a lot of very severe surgery and stuff. And then um, I think it would have been early December he was sent back home. And so the idea was that he'd be back on the farm and he'd be there for, I think, four or five weeks and then he was going to go back for a whole series of surgery beginning in the next year and get prostheses and all that sort of stuff in place. Um, he'd only been there a couple of days and then, and then he found a way to end his life. And um, so that was, that was huge and um, you know, mum was still not well. Anyway, once that was over, I was still in my sort of careerist, ambitious political thing. So if you like, I put the horror of all that to the back and, and, and pursued all this stuff. And then when we were with Keating, we did all the work around the internet. Um, I was still struggling to keep things together. Went and did a meditation course at the end of '94, and 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 through that, you know, I went off with all my ambition. I was going to become enlightened in world record time, but put myself through excruciating pain, and then suddenly had to realise I need to look after my body. I need to look after myself. Stop work. So I just took time off, and I came back and you know went in to see Jeff Walsh. And again, it was sort of like you're ready for a big year. We're about to you know run into an election. I said, mate, I'm out of here. And so I took, um, yeah, I took about six months off, um, and and you know would have been clinically depressed during that time. I ended up spending a lot of time looking after my daughter because um, Kath ended up going back to work, and in many ways that was very um, special time. And I think someone at someone at the time quoted me. There's the thing that Dostoevsky says about by spending time with children that we are healed, and that was that was wonderful. Spending a lot of time looking after Lucy, but. You know, I knew things were not going so well when um, I found myself, you know, being like a commando on the floor trying to get past her cot to get to the bathroom, not wanting to disturb her because there was all that stuff about, you know, kids when they're waking up and all that disrupting patterns and stuff. So anyway, look, it was a very special, special time. Um, and then we moved. Um, and, and during that time, though, um, again, because of the interest we had around the technology piece, um, I was trying to do a little bit of consultancy. I think I set up a, a business called Punya Multimedia and Punya was the Pali word for wisdom. Um, anyway, I, I remember sitting on my computer in Howard Street in Kingston. It was a Dell Pentium 90 that cost me about $5,000 and had 20 megabytes of RAM or something. <laughs> and, and, you know, you had that whole sound of do 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 trying to connect into CompuServe or something. But they just set up the Microsoft network and they, had, they were having celebrity chats once a week or so. 
And so I found myself, you know, one of 30 people around the world in an online chat session with Deepak Chopra, who was in San Francisco at the time. And, um, and so I just said, you know, well, couldn't we be using this technology for social good? And it was a fairly sort of, you know, fairly inane, not inane, but a fairly sort of simple question. But he just replied, and I was blown away by the fact that we could have this global conversation. So, I, I, you know, straight afterwards, I got on the phone to Daniel Petrie, and I said, Daniel, this technology, it's unbelievable. And he said to me, he said, well, look, you talk about your suicide all the time because off the back of my cousin's experience, and, and then, you know, 94, 95, the rates were starting to really escalate. He said to me, sort of, why don't you do something about your suicide using the internet? So I went, oh, okay, so not my idea. Um, and um, he gave me some seed funding, 10,000 or whatever, we developed the prototype and then linked up with Michael Rennie um, and Paul Gielding who had just come back from running Greenpeace International and we set up the Inspire Foundation. And the idea then was about how can we use the internet to try and do something about the suicide rates. And we didn't have any sort of grand vision or strategy, it was more just a very visceral reaction. We've got to find ways to connect with young people who are feeling isolated and our sense was that technology, the anonymity of it, offered huge opportunities. But then, you know, even when we launched Reach Out first time, we were getting a lot of critique people saying, oh, this is just going to be for rich, white, young men in the you know, inner cities. But I think we all, always had a sense that it was more powerful than that. But the thing that really, really sort of helped confirm what we were doing was that we, we launched a, a beta site prototype and um, Within about three weeks, we got a message from a young woman saying, look, I just want to say thank you. Um, you know, my friend visited this site, and, um, and if she hadn't, she wouldn't be alive today. So there was just this wonderful, if you like, confirmation from on high that what we were doing was of use and, and of value in the world. And then when we came to formally launch the service um, um, at the beginning of um, 98, um, that young woman who'd sent that message came and was part of the, if you like, the youth involvement from the very beginning and that's always, I think it's probably one of the things I've been most proud about Reach Out's work was that we always, we did it, you know, initially I thought we we're going to go and save young people and that but we gave space for young people to play a key leadership role um, and in fact John O'Nicholas who was one of our first employees has, you know, has been doing an outstanding role now as the CEO there and in many ways he was the one that did a lot of or we did all the great work. I tended to do the spruiking and the storytelling and that. And um, but we, you know, when we launched, um, uh, we, you know, we were getting. I remember we got a. There was a piece in the Brazil Daily or something saying the world's first online youth suicide prevention services launched. Um, we were getting people were unsure. We were a little bit seen as cowboys, um, but we were, we knew anecdotally we knew it was just having a profound impact. And so it was a few years down the track that. Um, we, Jane Burns came and was our director of research and she came a bit apprehensive thinking, oh, is there any evidence based for what these guys are doing? And she said, actually, there's a hell of, hell of a lot that's there. So I think, um, yeah, over time, and then we sort of, we took it to Ireland and also to the US as well. No, it's, it's an important space to have those conversations, the, the hard conversations about mental illness. So uh, one of my school friends, Andrew McIntosh, took his own life in 1994 uh, and I've often thought back that was just a few years before all of this stuff was taking off and none of us knew that he was suffering, suffering depression so none of us kind of asked the are you okay sorts of questions but Andrew was a bit of a 
tech geek. We were in the lighting crew together. I'm sure he would have been an early adopter of technology had only the internet been around kind of five years earlier than it was, then uh, uh, the wonderful Andrew might still be with us. But I want to move from your sort of professional career mm -hmm. to the, the personal changes that are happening because during this period, the Jesuit boy is, uh, is getting pretty interested in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, you mentioned before your retreat. What you didn't mention, though, was, as I recall, it was a 10-day completely silent retreat. Yeah. It was, How it was is a, that? Yeah, it's a Vipassana retreat. It was up in the Blue Mountains. Um, and that was in the, what's called the Theravadan tradition, which is, um, it was a Burmese meditation style. So what happens is that you, um, yeah, you go there and essentially you're not allowed to talk for 10 days and you're sitting on a mat about maybe 12 or 13 hours a day and um, if you're not used to doing that it's excruciatingly painful um, but I went there with all my ambition and um, you know you get to about day three or something and you're meant to sit for a total of about three hours without moving I ended up sitting for five hours and it felt like I had a knitting needle in my knee and there was sort of I guess the Catholic sort of self-flagellating message was if it's really painful it must be doing me a lot of good um, but when I, so after that I, 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 I resolved to keep doing that particular practice for 12 months. Um, but every so often I'd walk into a bookshop and I'd see the Tibetan book of living and dying. And so I felt this pull towards the Tibetan thing. But again, very, I resisted it very strongly because I'm going, oh, that's Richard Gere, that's sort of Dalai Lama, that's all celebrity, I'm not going anywhere near that stuff. And, um, and what happened was that then... Um, you know, as it's turned out, my whole journey with Inspire or working around the mental health coincides exactly when I started getting involved in the Tibetan Buddhist stuff. So Dalai Lama came out in, I think it was September 96. Um, I went along to a major teaching he was doing at the Horden Pavilion. Um, I walked in there and sitting down the back and I was thinking, oh, this is really nice. They've got a whole lot of, you know, um, Aboriginal people playing the didgeridoo. In fact, it wasn't didgeridoo, it was the monks chanting. Um, and at that stage, I was, look, I was going through quite a difficult time. I was seeing a sort of like a, a Reiki um, sort of therapist. Um, we'd have sessions and I'd be highly emotional. Um, I remember, um, you know, during the process, you know, I had certain dreams when the Dalai Lama was giving his, um, was giving his um, teaching. Um, I then went sort of looking after that at a few different Tibetan groups. Um, and, uh, and, and I'd become very addicted to the meditation. Um, I had a sense then, you know, it's a bit like, you know, wanting to escape all that. I had the sense that my destiny was to be a monk in a cave, um, which was more about my desire just for the experiences of meditation. Um, I think Lucy would have been, how old was Lucy? She would have been, um, she would have been about three or four then. Um, I was a pain in the ass at home because I was thinking that my, family was holding me back from my spiritual destiny and but I genuinely and honestly I was trying to resolve how do I how do I balance family and and, and this thing and and um, after the Dalai Lama's talk I just sort of doubled rang up a there was a Buddhist center in Balmain and I rang up and spoke to this guy and his English was wasn't great and anyway he said you know come around and I went and met him and um, he very sort of gently but I think firmly told me that maybe, you know, your family is your spiritual destiny, so let's get over that. And, um, but I felt 
I felt very calm with him. And, you know, for someone who'd been, you know, abused by their spiritual teacher as an adolescent, um, you know, I didn't, I came to this stuff with a very strong degree of vigilance. My antenna were up. And, um, and I felt completely safe with this guy. And um, over the time, I started going along and we're back talking about hell realms and I'm, oh God, I'm back in the Catholic Church again and stuff. But I just had a really quite positive experience. Um, there was a sense of, of, of coming home. Um, I remember the, the, um, the Lama that had set up the centre um, a number of years ago, he'd passed away and then my teacher, or my current teacher, he'd come to replace him. But we used to sit in the... Um, we used to do our prayers in Evans Street in Roselle. We just had a small house there. And one of the things that you do is you just say, you know, you do these prayers for the person that's died to take rebirth, to come back and to help the world. And, you know, often there'd be only two or three of us there and we'd be doing these chants and sometimes you just have... just have tears would just start, would just start coming. So, um, so there, was, there was a sense for me of like a coming home. Um, there was a sense of, um, of safety. Um, and also then within that Tibetan tradition or the Mahayana thing, there's a notion, um, there's a notion of being of, of service in the world. And so, you know, we talk about what's called, a, you know, a bodhisattva. And so the bodhisattva's resolution is to say, you know, I'm going to come back time after time until like everyone's happy and um, you know and in a sense it was a bit like Christ squared because it was sort of you've got a whole belief about future lifetimes and um, or past lifetimes so then I was encountering men who's um, deeply spiritual men who had a generosity of spirit that to me previously was unimaginable and so, in a sense, I think that gave me a, a, a container or something of safety um, while I was sort of going out into the world. And so when we launched the Reach Out service, um, um, Kempo, who's my teacher, he came along and he was sitting there in the front row, I think it was next to Joe Hockey, because it was in Joe Hockey's electorate. And, and so that whole journey with Reach Out and Inspire um, was done hand in hand with my Tibetan practice. And in a sense, I think it sort of kept the motivation up about wanting to help people, uh, particularly people who were suicidal. Um, but also, too, there was a, um, a sense of, if you like, a bigger framework or a bigger context for it. Um, and so, you know, as difficult, and as difficult as it was, one of the things we did, there's a practice called Tonglen. So the idea is that you put yourself in the shoes of, of, of other people. And so when I'd find things were really difficult, often you just say, okay, well, imagine if I'm a young person that's feeling suicidal or whatever. Whatever difficulty I'm having here and now, it's, it's nothing compared to that. Um, and then I also, too, when I was doing some retreats and that, I would imagine and go back and think of my cousin and um, of his you know, level of suffering and stuff. And so I think that trying to focus on others sort of pulls you up out of the difficulties that you're having on a daily basis yourself. Um, I also then, you know, early on I, I connected up with um, Reverend Bill Cruz. And um, it was interesting because the person who was the founder of our Tibetan Buddhist Centre was actually good mates with Bill Cruz. And they had this wonderful rapport. And 
I don't know if it was through the Buddhist Centre, but anyway, I, I heard that Bill was holding sessions in his church at Ashfield for um, parents who'd lost kids to suicide. And so I went along maybe three or four of these sessions, and, um, and that, that, was, that was profoundly humbling and inspiring because um, I remember one of the mothers saying that, you know, when, you know, when you're going through the, you know, the depths of your despair, when your grief couldn't possibly be any worse, to go and um, hang out the washing or go and doing the shopping is some, you know, extraordinary act. And for me, that was so incredibly valuable because there was I thinking, you know, me and a few others were trying to do this stuff around youth suicide, but I realised, you know, the world is continuing to spin because each and every day there are millions of people doing extraordinary things that just get passed unnoticed. And so I think that was really, you know, really, really special. And, um, and since then, I've, you know, maintained a wonderful relationship with, with, um, with Bill and... Um, yeah, so that you know, a number of sort of special moments mm, where he's a special man, and these and these are things that, you know, I could sort of write my career about. I decided X, Y, Z, and all that sort of stuff. When I look back, it's almost like things just you know, you go like it was Daniel Petrie's idea to do reach out and all these sorts of things. So um, part of it is there about trying to be you know, at the same time as being incredibly having been ambitious. I think within the Tibetan Buddhist context. I found a level of ambition that could not be surpassed. That there are people who are saying, not this lifetime, not two or three, but hundreds of lifetimes. And so, in a sense, I think that gave me a bit of a, a container. But the other thing too was, you know, and this is a this is an image that's, you know, it's been quite strong with me in recent times. Is that you have a sense of being like a a horse or a powerful horse that's got a big energy, and and what happens is that I sort of, whether it's my religious practice or whatever, is that you need a harness that, 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 by which you can actually sort of, you know, harness all that energy. And your, your harness is sort of about whether you call it your ethical framework or how you live your life. Um, you need that. But increasingly, you also need someone, excuse me, you also need someone um, a sense of some or a higher power or your higher self or God or something else holding the reins. So there needs to be like that surrendering over to, uh, you know, to something else about, okay, you just send me where it is, wherever it is that, you know, I need mm. to go. Um, because my experience was, you know, if you think about the sort of more manic periods, is that yes, put a harness around me and yes, I could go off, but, you know, I could career, you know, near cliff edges and stuff. And... And given a bit of a, you know, that history of sort of trauma and stuff, in many ways, that's when I felt most alive. It's sort of like when you're sort of hyper-vigilant. And so the work for me, I guess, more recently is about how do you try and get away from the cliff edge where you feel sharp and focused? Um, how do you try and get, if you like, to the mountain um, where you're calmer, where you're more radiating light, where you're trying to draw people there rather than you know, as I was in the US trying to sort of stand at a cliff edge to stop, you know, a million kids attempting suicide each year. Um, and part of the thing is it's actually harder to do those internal changes. And I remember, um, I remember reading um, Doug Hammarskjöld's private diaries called Markings. So I think it was UN Secretary General. And these were diaries that weren't meant to be made public. And I stumbled across a, a passage where he talks about 
I can't remember the exact words, but it's to the effect that sometimes we create these grand noble projects because they're easy to deal with than things closer to themselves. So I feel that you know my work in the world now is, if you like, is internal work, and you know me being better and um, um, if you like so much more more grounded um, will be of more benefit to the world. But that's the scary thing is is is, is changing oneself. Um, you know, not not necessarily even you know changing politics or or countries or whatever. But doing the internal work is the really hard work. And you spend a fair bit of time on it. Right, I mean, I, uh, I always feel a bit guilty about the amount of time I spend as a marathon runner training every day, but uh, uh, you, uh, your, your training is pretty intense, isn't it? How, how much time, what, what is your daily, uh, daily meditation practice? Yeah, so, um, I mean, every morning um, I would do about, um, about an hour's meditation in the morning, but... Um, so, for example, though, if you'd seen me this morning and um, seen me sitting on a mat looking sort of, you know, cross-legged and looking like a Buddha, you'd say, oh, wow, that guy's really got his act together and that might have been the sort of the calm person that you see. But if you had a bit of MRI or you had an insight into my mind, you'd say that, see that my mind was, you know, focused on the meditation for probably about 0.5% of that hour. Um, but I, I do find that that's helpful and that's very grounding. And then in the evening, I'll probably do about... Uh, usually about half an hour as well. Um, what was interesting was that when I first started doing that Vipassana course, they required us to commit to an hour a day. And to me, initially, that seemed like such an imposition. Um, but having started to do it, I actually found it transformed your day. It actually it gave you like extra time because it gave you clarity, it gave you calm. So any time sort of spent in, in, in prayer or in, in meditation is actually an incredible investment. Um, one of the things I've got to be careful about is it's easy to think, oh, I do an hour every morning. Whereas the Tibetans are very sort of strong in saying it's the quality of the meditation, it's not the time. But irrespective of that, the thing for me of having a morning and evening practice, um, and, and it would be very, very rare that I wouldn't do a morning practice because something was on, but that is really critical in terms of grounding me and um, and yeah, and, and if I didn't have that, you know, you know, without being overly dramatic, I'm not sure that I would have been alive today. Because you know, when I came back from Thailand, um, I was you know I was drinking a lot. Uh, I remember I came back. I went and bought an Alfa Romeo on loan, and um, and I was still grieving very much from Eva's death. And I, I remember um, driving up to Sydney one time, and I was just driving, and I was saying, "How fast can this car go?" And I think I got up to about 160 or something. And I think I'd had a few drinks as well. And that was off the back of I'd run into a friend of Evers just, just before that. And um, I remember pulling over on the side of the road and going, oh, no, I think I'd better stop and sleep in the night. So, so the thing for me is that, is that, you know, I've had lots of energy and strong emotion, um, which is a little bit like the wild horse. And my sense is get a good harness around it and if you like, try and give the reins over to someone and then you will go in wonderful, magical places um, because there's someone up there who's got a better view of things than you. And so that's partly enabling me to be a little bit more sort of surrendering quite the right word, but being ready to go where sort of things take you. Yes, yes. And, and as well as your daily routine, you've also got an, an annual retreat, don't you? 
Yeah, so I, I, I find I actually need, I, I, I look to go and do probably a four to six week retreat uh, each year. Um, the, um, when I started at um, Inspire, we actually set up that people got an extra week of paid leave to go and take reflection. It was partly selfish. Um, but I do need that um, time on my own to um, sort of reground, as it were. And, you know, when, I, when I'm, when I'm in, in retreat, that's when I feel the most calm. I feel like um, the most at peace. Um, and so there's probably a little bit of me that resents sort of coming back into the world, as it were. And... Um, but my, my teacher's always, you know, he's always sort of saying, you know, the work, is, the work is in the world, so don't think, you know, don't go and do retreat just to escape. And he says, anyway, he said, if you go and live in a cave, if you've got a monkey mind in this world, you're going to have a monkey mind in a cave. So part of it is that thing of trying to, you know, straddle between the, if you like, the spiritual practice and the work in the world. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've, got a, I've got a, you know, I've got a long, long, way to go there because um, you know I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of emotion that sort of goes on so uh, you know despite the appearances of being extremely calm and, that, and there are times when I am very calm but there can be a lot of stuff that's sort of sitting there below the surface. How does your family feel about you going away for four to six weeks a year? Well my wife is highly supportive and um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but she says whenever you come back, you're a, you're a profoundly sort of calmer and more relaxed person. Um, you know, my family's always been quite extraordinary in terms of giving permission and space for me to go and um, to do retreats or to do my practice. Um, you know, I've, I've, you know, I live a very busy life. I'm travelling a lot. Um, so, in a sense, you know, whether it was, you know, when I was setting up we're setting up stuff in the US and Ireland. I was travelling a lot of the time, or even with my current job, because Sane's based in Melbourne. I'm, you know, travelling every week. So there's an extent to which I'm not a regular part of their life. So me going away is not quite as um, uh, disruptive as it may be in other circumstances. But, you know, one of my, you know, great blessings is to have, you know, a wife and kids who are just incredibly supportive of me doing whatever it is that I need to do to nurture myself. Um, and um, you know, I, I we had it. We had it with my wife when I was first was addicted to the meditation. We had a deal that if the mortgage was paid off by the time I was fifty, I could go and become a monk. But um, anyway, I'm now at fifty-six, and the mortgage is bigger than it's ever been. So I think my my, my chance of finding time <laughs> in the cave is might be a couple of decades away. Sydney property prices, but again, <laughs> uh, just uh, just to wrap up, Jack. When you look back over the sort of arc of your life's experiences, if you could sit across the table from your teenage self, what advice would you, would you give him? Oh, I, th I think it's to say that things, things will be okay, um, that, it, that it could be a wild, a wild ride, um, but that so long as you keep your motivation being about wanting to be of service to others, um, that the world will organise itself around that. And, and that that thing about focusing on others, um, that's where you'll find true happiness. So don't worry about yourself so much. Take care of yourself. You know, don't push yourself, don't go too hard. But if your work can be in service of others, then, then, then you'll find longer lasting happiness. Jack Heath, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Andrew.
Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Next week, I speak with palliative care nurse Nikki Johnson about endings, what makes a good death, and how a fuller understanding of death can help us live a better life.